So, we have been talking about some really encouraging stuff. Uh, we've been talking about how man has been totally corrupted through the fall. Uh, but we're going to get into some more really encouraging stuff. Grab your sheet there and look down and see all the things we're going to be talking about. How exciting this is. Especially that last section. We're not going to get to this until next week. But those uh, items at the bottom there, we're going to be talking about all of those things, uh, which are hot topics in your gospel conversations. Um, not the funnest topics, but important ones to know. Okay, let's do a little bit of review. Satan sinned first when evil was found simply in him. What are your texts for that? Where do you go in the Bible to show somebody that Satan sinned first and that Sin originated in him. Up front. Up front. Genesis somewhere. No, not Genesis. That was a first guess, second guess. <laughs> was it Ezekiel? Ezekiel, what chapter? Yes. Okay. 28. 28. 28. Yeah. And the other one is another prophet, and it's half the chapter number of Ezekiel. Remember, that's Isaiah. Isaiah 14. Okay. Works for me. At football scores, 14, 8, 28. You can, you can do this. Um, so Satan sinned first when evil was found simply in him, is what the scripture says. He then became the tempter of Adam and Eve, and Adam was the head and representative of humanity. Whoa, don't know why it's doing that. The sin, guilt, and condemnation of Adam has been imputed to all human beings. We talked about that last week. This, the word imputation was written up on the board. And remember we talked about it's not just imputed righteousness that gets put on our account through Christ. Before that, you have to understand imputed what? Sin. 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 From? Adam. Adam. First Adam puts sin on our account. And some people might say, well, I don't like that. Well, the good news is Christ puts righteousness on your account when you trust in him. Do you like that? <laughs> we, we like headship when it works in our favor. We don't like headship when it works against us. But either way, it's a reality. We have sin on our account from Adam, and through Christ, we may have our sin removed and righteousness in its place. Okay? Except we don't like it because we want to earn it ourselves. That's true. Yeah. We want to be so individualistic and autonomous. And that is not what God created us to be, is it? I deserve it, right? Yeah. 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 Well, you think of the first sin, Adam and Eve. It was autonomy, seeking to be independent from God. We are not independent. So man's new nature, this is not talking about when he gets saved. This is talking about mankind after the fall. And man's new, his new nature brings about these things in his natural state. All people are guilty in Adam. All people have fallen short. All people are incapable of doing spiritual good. All people are condemned by God. That's the reality of mankind in his natural state because of the fall. This is what scripture teaches us, okay? And it's not popular to teach these things. It's much more appealing in our flesh to say that man is neutral or something, right? But that is not what the scriptures teach. That's not what reality is. All men are born into sin. Man now exists with the image of God, but also with a fallen nature that opposes God. The image of God was not erased, right? Through the fall, the image of God was not erased. This is very important. We don't become like 
animals that are incapable, but we are still human beings. And we are still able to uh, do some things. We're going to talk about that today. But we have a fallen nature. Okay, We're still made in God's image, but we have a fallen nature. Can you think of some texts in the New Testament that declare that man is made in the image of God positively? I think we talked about this in our first lesson in anthropology. New Testament texts that affirm man in the image of God. There's one really clear one. In the first New Testament book that was written, do you know which book that is? First. Galatians. What? Galatians. No, that was the second one. Matthew. You're close. No. No, no, no. Oh, first, first New Testament book? Matthew wasn't even the first gospel, Jerry. Mark. Mark was the first gospel. Mark was the first gospel. But not the new first book written in the New Testament. James! James! is the first book written in the New Testament. James chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. You guys need to see this. You need to know this. Memory verse. Affirms that man is made in the image of God. James chapter 3. And what's the context of the first part of James 3? The mouth. The mouth. What about it? Filth and foul. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love the illustration that he uses in verse 5 about the forest fire. <laughs> Starts with a little flame. Well, your tongue is a fire. In verse 6, it says, The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, there it is, who have been made in the likeness of God. Verse 9, James 3. There's one of the clearest New Testament affirmations that man still bears the image and likeness of God. Okay? It's important to have this in your theology. The image of God was effaced, not erased. That's a theological phrase that can be helpful to remember. What does it mean to be effaced? Damaged. Okay, it's graffiti written over something, right? You've effaced a, a nice work of art by spraying graffiti all over it. But that doesn't mean it's been erased. So we exist now with the fallen nature still made in the image of God. All right, let's look at some texts here, starting with Genesis. I've got it outlined on your sheet there for you, where we'll be today. First text is Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, starting with verse 5. What were the blanks in the first surgery? I don't know. Let's see. Just Man now exists with the blank, but also with a blank nature. Image of God. Right here. There we go. Sorry. That's all right. Image of God, but also with the fallen nature that posts out. Okay, Genesis 6. This is the pre-flood world. What was the pre-flood world like? Hard to imagine. Nasty. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty interesting. The pre and in one sense you could say this, the pre-flood world was like what the future world will be like. Because what did Jesus say? The coming of the Son of Man, it'll be like in the days of Noah. Noah. All right. Kind of interesting, huh? But let's look at this text and let's soak up the words that are found here. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Who would like to read that for us? Genesis 6, I got it. 5 to 8. Go ahead. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right. Notice the adjectives and adverbs, particularly at the end of verse 5. What's, how, is, how are the thoughts of man described? Evil continually. Okay, so the adjective is evil. And I think we could all say, yeah, okay, evil. Um, sorry about this, I forgot to close these. Uh, we all have evil thoughts from time to time, yada, 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 nobody's perfect, etc. But what word follows that, Andy? Continually. Continually. And what word precedes evil? Only. Only evil. Continually. Wow. Okay. So if we just had, okay, man had some evil thoughts, that's one thing. But when you say only evil continually, that's really emphasizing something, isn't it? Really emphasizing the depravity of man. Really emphasizing the state of humanity that it had gotten to this point. Uh, we have not just only and continually, but great. The sin of man, or the wickedness of man, was great on the earth. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're pretty comprehensive with verse 5 here, aren't we? There's no wiggle room on, well, maybe there was a group of people somewhere on the face of the earth that was doing really good. No? No? The wickedness of man was great on the earth, meaning the whole earth. And this is important, too, because we believe in a global flood, not a localized flood. There have been people in history that have taught the flood was just a local event. Well, was sin a local event? Was the wickedness that was great on the earth, every intent of the thoughts of his heart being only evil continually, a local event? No, it was not. We're talking comprehensive worldwide. What made this scenario unique? So think, think of world history and what you know from Scripture, how history marches on after the flood or even before the flood. What was so unique about this time, do you think, that it called for a total wiping out of all people? This was that philosophical level where man is as detestable and simple as he can be. Right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it must have been really ugly. So what's the difference then? Then, and I don't know if I would say now, because now it feels pretty close to that. Uh, <laughs> what's the difference between then and, say, 100 years ago? Why didn't God flood the earth again 100 years ago? Besides the fact that he made a covenant and said he'd never do it. Well, the Holy Spirit is here restraining mankind right now. Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a restraint in, uh, you know, man, you know, the German word zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. that, that is being restrained by the Holy Spirit in, in our world right now. Okay. Where do you go in the New Testament to show that? Because you're right on. But where do you go in the New Testament to show that there's a restraint? You remember? Anybody remember? Because there will be a time when the restrainer is removed. Yes. That's right. Second Thessalonians. Chapter. There are only three. You got a 33% chance. 
Three. No, two. Second Thessalonians 2, okay? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, talking about the end. The restrainer will be removed. The man of lawlessness will be revealed. The restrainer will be removed, okay? So that, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can imply about end times from that. But to Andy's point, what's clear is in the present, there's a restrainer here working to restrain sin in the culture. And when he's removed, then sin is rampant. Okay? Jerry? So what makes the difference after the flood that is a man progresses again to uh, all the means of beginning to the times of Samuel and the kings and all of those yeah. types. But there's a little difference there. And it seems that you know the Holy Spirit is out there, but it doesn't dwell, but it is he. prevalent. He. He. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If the Holy Spirit itself, I guess, was not before the flood. Yeah. That prevalent. Yeah, there, and it's interesting because I mean, we look at Old Testament, New Testament, and we see. Um, yeah, First Samuel is a great example of this. The Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, leaves Saul, comes upon David, and David, in his moment of repentance, please, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then in the New Testament, we don't see that type of activity from the Holy Spirit with believers. Like you were saying, he comes to indwell. And so you think, okay, now let's back up and think, before the flood, <laughs> what was the Holy Spirit's ministry like on the earth? And, of course, we only have a very limited number of chapters. We just have chapters 1 through uh, 6. But it does seem as though God's hand was lifted from humanity. And that the Holy Spirit wasn't intervening or restraining. Because another text that um, comes to mind, Andy mentioned the restrainer, but also Romans 1. What do we see God actively doing, revealing his wrath in Romans 1? What's he doing with humanity? It says it three times. Letting them go. He's giving them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. So what does that imply? What's he doing before he gives them over? What does that imply? He's involved somehow, right? He's involved with humanity somehow in a way that changes when he gives them over. And I think that is most clearly seen in his restraint of sin, even in the unbeliever's life, where the man is not as bad as he could be. That's why you can feel relatively safe in a place like this, surrounded by unbelievers, leaving your car unlocked when you go to the grocery store and pace it. Or leaving stuff out in your yard and not thinking like a bike and not thinking, well, it's not in my neighborhood, no one's going to steal it. You've had those types of thoughts and that kind of assurance even among unbelievers. Because to a degree, God in his common grace through his own means, and this is a mystery, it's a great mystery. He's restraining sin in the culture. Yet when he gives them over, as we've seen more and more in our culture on a broad scale... Yeah, yeah. I mean, where's the trust with an unbeliever? It starts to deteriorate. And the expectations that you have for the world start to lower. <laughs> because it's a mysterious thing, but God is involved, and it gets to a certain point, he starts to give them over. And then the Second Thessalonians 2 event is on a big scale, the restrainer is removed. And essentially everyone is given over. It's pretty amazing. So this scenario is unique going all the way back to Genesis 6 because we don't know what function the Holy Spirit had as, as restrainer at that point during that time. And if I dare say that dispensation. 
we don't know what the Holy Spirit was doing uh, with humanity as clearly as we do with what he's doing with humanity today based on the revealed scriptures. And we know that these adjectives and adverbs were unique to that time in a, in a way. Okay? I, I would say um, after the flood, when Noah and his family walked out on the earth, at that time we couldn't say the wickedness of man was great. Every intent of his heart was only evil continually. It was a different world on the other side of the flood. Now things have progressed and things have gotten worse, but this was peak wickedness on the face of the earth, wasn't it? That's why God wiped everything out. Jerry. Maybe I'm getting ahead of the point, but the other way that God restrained, restrained sin after the flood is that men's lives are shortened. Mm. And that's, I always thought that that was a, a good thing, that evil men don't live a thousand years. You're so melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought that death was a great thing. <laughs> no, no, I mean, yeah, to the point, right, the longer you live, the more sin there is on the earth, right? Because here we are in these bodies of death. Now, think of this in a different way. What's not unique about this? So we've talked about how it is unique, this scenario, this state of the world. What's not unique about that state of the world in Genesis 6? They were fallen. Okay, right? They were fallen sinners. Yes, good. That's what they Yeah. Um, so it's not like this reversed the fall after the flood, right? After the flood, the effects of the fall remain. But this was peak wickedness on a grand scale. Okay. Psalm 51. Let's turn to Psalm 51 together. Do we say Psalm chapter 51? No. What do we say? Say Psalm 51. Do we say Psalms 51? No. no. Oh, okay. The Psalms is a collection of singular yeah. psalms. We say Psalms 51 and 52 it's if we're talking about multiple psalms. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Okay. Just helping your, your biblical literacy, everybody. That's all. Just checking in on you. Okay, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Who would like to read those verses for us? Psalm 51, 1 to 6. Who's got it? Go ahead, Jerry. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. One more? One more? Okay. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. All right, good, thanks. David makes reference to the timing of his sin nature. Can you spot it? At conception. At conception. Verse 5. In sin, my mother conceived me. So, when was he affected? When was he first affected by sin? The very moment of conception. Has there ever been a time in David's existence or our existence when we were not affected by sin? No. 
Because when did our existence begin? Thank you. Very good. Okay. Not only was he sinful from birth, he was sinful, affected by sin, having a sin nature from conception. What are the implications of this? Morning sickness. Mm. <laughs> Would you say morning sickness? <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> Not what I was thinking, but okay. <laughs> the implications are that there's not a human being that walks this earth right now, nor has since the fall, that has not been stained and deceived and walking in some form of debauchery or sin from the top, from before we can remember mm-hmm. until the time we die. Yeah. We breathe sin. It's part of our very existence. Yep. Yes, it's, we've been directly and intrinsically affected by sin. From the very beginning of our existence. It also implies, too, when you get to the fact of abortion and stuff like that, that we are humans. We are alive. We're not just seagull or something like that. Yeah. Clear back. From conception, yes, we are very good. All the way, all the way out. There's an actual personhood that's being affected. Right. Yeah, right. not just a clump of cells. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jerry, it's only through God that He could even perceive the fact that of what was going on, hmm. and even back to His conception that mm-hmm. He was born in that sin. Yes, and He's going to live in sin. Until he dies. Yeah. He didn't say that, but it's going to be assumed yeah. that he is. But until God revealed that, he is like most other sinners. He's just still sinning. He's not worried about it. Yep. He's not, but he has come to the realization that God's his only hope. Yes. He needed his maker to explain that to him. Yeah, because what do we know about our time in the womb? What do we know about our time in diapers? We need the Lord to tell us, reveal it to us. And more directly, it also points to the fact that we need someone other than ourselves. We can't see too myopic. We're too down in the weeds. We need external grace. No, we, we need revelation. Yeah. Yeah. From from the God yes. that created everything. That's right. So I think we're going to talk about this at the end of next week's lesson. We're going to get into age of accountability stuff. And there's room for disagreement on all this. But within the Orthodox Christian position, what must you affirm regardless of what you believe about age of accountability and all that stuff? On this point, what must you affirm about children? They're sinners. They're vipers and diapers. There you go. Okay. So now there's all kinds of conversation we can have about how God deals with Sinners who lack mental capability, who who lack all kinds of stuff. I mean, a, a one-day-old child versus a ten-year-old child versus a one-hundred-year-old child. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of conversation we can have on that, but we can't get around the fact that from conception, every single individual is directly affected by sin. Right. So this whole idea that children are innocent or perfect. Or neutral, or something like that. Is there any room for that in biblical theology? Zero. Okay. 
Well, like you said, hand, hand a little one-year-old your watch and then try and take it back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Your arms no one had to teach them how to do this, right? That's right. Uh, isn't that amazing? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Right? We're born dead in the spirit. Actually, the man's spirit is dead, and it says that until God quickens it. Yes. Actually, the only difference between children and us is that we've learned to put on a veneer of, <laughs> yeah, right. of, of hiding our true intentions. Yeah, just Those kids are just like, nah, it's mine. <laughs> We're better at acting. Yeah. Some, some people say that children of babies are actually the most selfish because all they want is their needs. They want for their needs. They cry. They throw fits if they don't get mm -hmm. what they need. Mm -hmm. Regardless of anybody else, they don't care what anybody else's needs <laughs> Yes, <laughs> they want what they want. Yep, <laughs> absolutely right. Okay, we'll revisit this uh, next week. Let's go to Jeremiah 17 now. Jeremiah 17, we're going in order here, so just keep moving forward in your Bible. To Jeremiah chapter 17, and we're going to start with verse 5. <laughs> Who would read this for us? Jer Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10. Go ahead, Mr. Bowman. No, Rex, you'll get the next one. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. For he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see the prosperity when prosperity comes but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is in Yahweh. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by the stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, not, nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. All right. Now, I want us to focus on those last two verses, 9 and 10. And I'm going to ask you a very important theological question up here on the screen. What is the heart? This, this is important because we're told whatever it is, it's more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. It's what the Lord searches. What's the heart? It's not an organ, that's for sure. Okay. It's true, it's a muscle. It's the center of us as individuals, our intents, our desires, our, our will. Okay. It are us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when, I, when I taught this in Guam, I always told the little kids it was their feelings. Huh. Well, say, what, say more about what you would say about that, Jim. I would ask them when they come home from school and their parents had told them to clean their room, can you say, nope, I feel like watching television. That's what's going to happen. They're in trouble, right? <laughs> your feelings. You can't trust your feelings. You have to do what you know is right. Yeah. Yeah, our feelings flow from who we are. 
don't they? What's, what's another word there in verse 10 that has to do with something the Lord tests with right alongside the heart? The mind. The mind. The mind. What's the mind? Have you ever had a child ask you what's the difference between the mind and the brain? <laughs> it's a good question to think through, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> mind inside the brain somewhere? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the brain hides it. <laughs> what, what are some other words, though, that we get in the Bible about who we are? Heart, mind, what are some other words? Kitties. <laughs> Guts, yeah. Bowels, I'll put bowels. bowels yes. You know the New Testament word for compassion. Remember when uh, in Matthew 9, Jesus was with his disciples and he looked upon the people and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd? Do you know that that word means he, his gut stirred? That's what compassion means. So it does directly relate to our innermost being. How we feel? Good feeling. Okay, what else? There are two S words. Uh, that are very prominent, important here. Spirit and soul. Soul. Okay. What other words? Well, okay. <laughs> you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. Yeah, that strength. strength. Okay. All right. So here's a, a few. Um, there are more that we could list, believe it or not. But what do all of these words have to do with? What do they all, what do they all have in common? What are they all in reference to? Feeling. Us. Yeah. Who, are, who is us? How are we composed? Are we flesh and bone and blood? We are. Yes. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I am. I don't know what you do. The rest of us are. That's right. I'm just about wrong. So the answer is yes, comma, but what? More. What? There's a duality to man. Stinking kids taking caps off of markers. Okay. Put one in Achilles and make an example out of So, this is all in reference to what type of makeup that we have. Immateriality, right? Because we are not just material, flesh and blood and bone. We are immaterial beings. We are both. We have this immaterial aspect to us that's talked about through all these different terms that's combined with a physical nature. And of course, uh, secular humanism and the, the culture of the day does away with all this and just says you're a, a bag of atoms. Therefore, do what you want. I mean, nothing matters in that worldview. You take away this, nothing matters. But you have this in there, and this comes from what creation reality that we talked about at the start of this class as seen in James 3. Man is made in the image of God. God. Alright, so if we're made in the image of God, that means we have this stuff going on. Uh, Andy talked about the will, the will of man, the, the center of our thought and emotion. Okay, That's because we're made in the image of God. Now, that's a beautiful reality, a necessary reality. But what we're saying in this class is that all of this was affected by what? The fall. That's right. Through the fall of Adam, sin has entered into our immaterial. 
And sin has not just affected our flesh that we die, we grow old and die. Sin has affected the way we think. It's affected what we feel. It's affected our will. The prophet's use of the words deceitful and sick, this is verse 9, reveal an intrinsic corruption that occurs naturally within man. And we could look at these other uh, passages. We won't turn there. You can just write them down. But same book, chapter 15, verse 18, and chapter 30, verses 12 to 15. Man has been intrinsically corrupted. So not just externally, but intrinsically. Oops, got a spell right. Intrinsically corrupted. Not only externally. We are corrupted externally, but intrinsically as well. Okay? Romans 3. Let's go to the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 9. Rex, I think this passage has your name all over it. Because you're a sinner, right? I are. So this applies to you. <laughs> Romans 3. Evil little. Romans 3, 9 to 18. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers on their diapers. I'm sorry. The poison of vipers <laughs> is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and a way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. <clears throat> what a statement <clears throat> about humanity. Man, I'm glad I'm not like that. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Paul has made his case that both Gentiles and Jews are guilty. Remember Romans 1, Gentiles, they, even though they knew God, they suppressed the truth and they created idols out of all kinds of things. Gentiles are guilty. Romans 2, the Jews, just because they're Jews outwardly, that doesn't mean they're Jews inwardly. There are plenty among the Jews who do not know God. They're under sin. And then Romans 3, wrapping it all up, everybody is guilty. Psalm 14 is the main reference for what Rex just read, but Psalms 5 and 10 and Isaiah 59 are in there as well. Psalm 14 is a psalm of David. Uh, David writing about his enemies. These things his enemies were doing to him. Their feet were swift to shed blood. They're, they're destructive people. They don't know God. They're not seeking after God. And Paul takes this psalm and applies it to all of humanity. There's a spiritual significance that Paul uses here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that applies to all of humanity. Now let me ask you, what Rex just read in Romans 3, talking about everybody, do you think that's a bit harsh? It's the truth. It doesn't matter whether it's harsh. It's true. And going back to what you said earlier, Jeremy, fall didn't just affect our immateriality. It affected our materiality. Mm -hmm. The very fact, you know, I, I feel that, that eternity is written in the heart of humans. Yeah, that's Ecclesiastes 3. Right. And 
And the very fact that we've got 70 years on this earth, or however long it is that the Lord is... Maybe decreed, 80. Maybe 80. Psalm 90. Yeah. The very fact that, that we have that limited amount of time, you know, the, the, the human aspect of losing a loved one is the fact that you don't get to see them anymore. Mm -hmm. You don't get to talk to them and love on them and them love on you. So, it's, it's that... My, my point is, is, the objective evidence of our sin is everywhere. The very fact that people are dying and that people are not with us anymore mm -hmm. is, is testament to that. Yeah, yeah um, and, and going back to what we were discussing earlier about God's activity in the world before he gives people over to their sin. This is important to understand too. Because you read Romans 3. Let's look at um, just verse 15. Think of your really nice Mormon neighbors. Are their feet literally quick to shed blood? Answer that question. What do you think? Literally, no. Okay. Why, why do you say that? Because you don't see them running down the roads with knives in their hands. Okay. Yeah. Or swerving with a car trailer. Right, swerving with a car trailer and over me. As far as you Hasn't know. Hasn't happened yet. That's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah, as far as you know, not all of your neighbors are murderers, right? Okay, very reasonable to conclude that. Somebody come to your aid. Now, now, why is that though? Now, this is the this is the million dollar question because the first question is just okay, stating reality. Not not all my neighbors are murderers, but the difficult question is why? Why? Common grace. Okay, and that's an important. There's a watershed here. There are going to be people that say because they're not that corrupt. And then there are going to be other people who say they are that corrupt, but God's restraining sin. The Bible teaches us man is that corrupt, but God is involved in restraining sin. It's a big, big time reality. And as God lifts his restraining hand, you start seeing more and more of this stuff, don't you? You start seeing it. Andy and Jerry. I had a coworker that was in special forces down in Arizona. And, you know, he said to me one time, talking to his kids. He said, the reason that I go over there is so that that doesn't come here. The, without rule of law, with, with yep. the insanity of an entire society falling apart, you know, the, the Genesis 6 picture, that's what we see the beginnings of coming here. Mm -hmm. And that's, but that was his, that was his thing. You know, he said, he said it very clearly. That's why I go over there. So it doesn't come here. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reason I went to Italy. So the Italians wouldn't come here. <laughs> yeah. right. Did it work? Yeah. I didn't see him. It helps that you live in Alfred's YouTube. Mr. Bowman. Sorry. <clears throat> well, in the reality, though, if you're going to be really realistic, uh, wow. If, if somebody falls down and is seriously hurt, we will make efforts to help them. Mm -hmm. But for the millions around the world that are dying of starvation and disease, what I know, how much how much of a finger do we lift to do anything about it? Mm -hmm. In which case, I'm sure God holds us guilty for not doing what we can because we don't do everything we can. Yeah, that's as regenerated people. Yeah, so there's um, an effect of sin 
that goes deeper, the root goes deeper, it spreads farther, and it continues on, even. Uh, we have been born again, we have been given a new nature, but has sin been removed from you? In one sense, yes, in another sense, no. <laughs> Positionally, yes. Does God see, I shouldn't say see, does God charge you with any sin? No. No. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, do you still have sin in your life? Yes. You better believe it. <laughs> and will there be a judgment for Christians? And it, it's a, it is a mystery, but if there will be a judgment for Christians. Not that sin has been charged on our account. Not that we will pay for sin. We won't be punished in any way. But we have to wrestle with this. And when we're glorified, all of the effects of sin will be ultimately removed. Tyler, do you have a thought? Yeah, just when you were talking about our depravity and our ability to see our depravity, the degree of our depravity. Um, I recently had a pastor, a good biblical pastor, take me, well, I took him to this passage. And he said, well, Paul's just being hyperbolic there. And so that watershed really influences our, our hermeneutic and our understanding of Scripture. And we take that into Scripture and it affects how we understand the rest of Scripture. So it's a pretty big deal. It is a worldview issue, isn't it? This affects the way you view everybody. <laughs> and how you view God's grace. Yeah, I mean, these you read this passage... I mean, a lot of us got saved through uh, Romans, the Romans Road. You know, we came to know the gospel, I guess I should say, through the Romans Road. We've heard, we heard someone explain these things to us, especially verse 10. There's none righteous, no, not one. Okay. In a vacuum, you can take that verse, you can handle it, you understand, I'm not perfect. Okay, that's fine. But the passage goes on to say a lot more than you're not perfect. The passage goes on to say you are an active enemy of God. And you're ready to rebel in every single gross, terrible way, if it not for God's intervention. Pretty wild, huh? John Frame, these passages describe what we are apart from Christ. There is some danger in this procedure because the Bible's description of sin apart from grace are terrible. Taken in themselves, they destroy hope. But the Bible does encourage us to take these evaluations in themselves in order to take away the hope that we can save ourselves. It's a great statement. The Bible presents this to you. God presents this to you. Apart from grace and hope, you need to feel it so that you can understand grace and hope in Christ. You've got you to gotta feel the effects of sin here. So let's start talking about some terms. We're going to get into this uh, a little bit this week. Maybe we can get through the first one or two and then we'll... Go from there. One way of describing man's totally fallen state is to say that he is totally depraved. And definitions, of course, are very important. Total depravity describes the natural state of man apart from God's grace. He is corrupt, incapable, and guilty. And we're going to go through and discuss those three terms. But as we think of depravity, consider these three terms. Corrupt, incapable, and guilty. That's what we mean by total depravity. And we need to define these and provide scripture for each one. Corrupt, incapable, and guilty. All right? Corrupt. Let's talk about this. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say this includes all of man's thinking, reason, desires, and affections. So what squeaks through? What's outside of those four things? Thinking, reason, desires, and affections. Well, that's all this, isn't it? Intrinsically corrupted. Okay? All of the behavior of the natural man is under the influence of the sin nature inherited from Adam. All. 
All. <laughs> all of the behavior of the natural man is under the influence of the sin nature inherited from Adam. That's, that's a big statement. Leaves no room for neutrality. Leaves no room for, you know, okay, man's a totally free agent. He can decide every moment whether he's going to sin or not. No, the natural man, all of his behavior is under the influence of the sin nature inherited from Adam. This aspect does not mean that all man ever does is outrightly sinful, but it begs the question, do neutral acts exist? <laughs> this, this was a fun one in Bible college, uh, in theology class. Do neutral acts exist? Boy, interesting stuff. What do you think? Huh? Leave it in Bible school. <laughs> what? We leave it in Bible school. We leave, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's not, not a bad answer. Certainly if God intercedes to the point where he wants man to do something or he's trying to influence man to do something. But the neutral acts have to be from God. Even, hmm. In that sense of the words, because neutral acts means, okay, uh, I can step away from sin to do something different. And sin can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's impossible until God does something to you to reveal something that you might be able to do when you drive, depending on how much yeah. it influences you. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, let me give you two scenarios. Of a, I mean, just consider a fallen, totally depraved uh, person. I'll give you three, three examples. Okay. A, a, a fallen, depraved person to someone who doesn't know Christ. This person's a soldier. In the military, U.S. military. That morning, he mindlessly woke up, like he does every day, and just grabbed some socks and put them off. That's act number one. Later that day, he's talking to a friend, uses the Lord's name as a cuss word multiple times in a conversation. That's act, act number two. Later that day, he's overseas somewhere, he jumps on a grenade and, and gives his own life on behalf of others. Are all three of those acts sinful? Are any of those acts sinful? What's the combination of all this? Well, how do we interpret these things? You say the socks were a different color? <laughs> no, no, same color. Same color. <laughs> they were green and made out of wool. So they're all three. I would say they're all three sinful. Okay, what? All of our righteousness is filthy rags. So it's, we either obey ourselves which is sinful, or we obey God to whatever level which is we need. So mindlessly picking out socks is a sinful act? What's the purpose? You will wear Put the socks on because you don't. Know my feet's going to hurt. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Some subcommon grace of God. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Jumping on, a, on some sort of IED. Is that the right term? Grenade was right. Grenade. Okay. Grenade. Jumping on something, risking his life on behalf of others. I mean, think of all the countless soldiers who didn't know Christ, who have died on behalf of this country, defending this country. Sir, a SEAL did it in Iraq. That exact thing. Sinful? Serve God's purpose. 
<laughs> okay, all right. That's the safe answer. <laughs> if we're not serving God, then it's simple. Mm. And if you don't know Him, you can't. I mean, we have to go back to the basic definition of sin. And it's disobedience. David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. When yeah. I first read that, I said, no, I, he, he, was, he sinned against uh, Bathsheba's husband, against the nation, against, no, David said, against you and you alone yeah. have I sinned. Sin is an act directed at God, not at people. Hmm. Now, the things we do to people can be sinful in God's eyes, but the sin is against God. I don't think that neutrality itself exists towards God, towards God morally. Okay. And I think that a man who throws himself on a grenade to save his fellow soldiers is doing a good thing. Do I think that it matters whether he does it in obedience to God, or whether he does it as a high feeling of, of patriotism, yeah. yeah, I think it does make a difference. Hmm. Does that, it? Uh, oh, go ahead. And, it, and I think, just like Jerry said, God uses that. God uses both because I, you know, we again we don't understand this, but in parts of the world, stuff that we think of as the most horrible profoundly evil things happen. Not occasionally, but regularly. There's that great theologian of antiquity, uh, Saint Bob Dylan, I think, who said, uh, you gotta serve somebody? Wasn't that, wasn't that Bob Dylan? And, and so, yeah, I mean, let's think, getting up and picking up clothes for the day, not an outrightly sinful act, right? But who are you serving? So, that's it. Every act is an act of service. Is it done for love of God and neighbor? Or is it done for love of self? These are hard questions to wrestle with, but it's important that we think through them. Okay? Well, if a soldier throws on a pair of jeans and goes and appears in formation that way, <laughs> he is sinning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even if they're Levi's? Even if they're Levi's, yeah. That's right. It's impossible to please God. Yeah, that's right. Without faith, impossible to so If we do these things without faith, they're sin. And you're either pleasing God or displeasing God. There's nothing in between, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Seems that way. Corruption does not mean inability. So, though man is corrupted in his reason, he is not unable to reason. Now, let's define this as the last thing for the day. Uh, corruption does not mean inability. So though man is corrupted in his reason, he is not unable to reason. Well, let's talk about incapability. The natural man is absolutely incapable of pleasing or worshiping God in his fallen state. Absolutely incapable of pleasing or worshiping God in his fallen state. Romans 8, 5 to 8 spells this out. Those who are in Adam are in the flesh, and in the flesh it is impossible to please God in any way. That's what it says in Romans 8. Um, in the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. It's an ability word. So the mindset on the flesh, that's all that the lost person can do is set his mind on the flesh. Am I right? Can the 
lost person, the unregenerate person, the one who has been affected by sin since conception, the one who has an intrinsically corrupted, immaterial being, can he please God through the Holy Spirit? Not apart from being born again. Absolutely not. He can't. That's Romans 8. Minds on the flesh cannot please God. Now, although man is able to think and to reason and have desires and affections, he is unable to please God with any of them. So this is the key point. We talked about incapable. We're not saying man is unable to reason. We're just saying with his reason, he can't please God in any way. This is extremely important when it comes to evangelism and apologetics. Man cannot reason his way to God. But without God, he can't reason at all. Man, or God is not the one man reasons himself to. God is the one man can't reason without. Man is able to think. He's able to reason. He has desires and affections, but he's unable to please God with any of those things. And the picture being painted is really starting to look bleak, isn't it? Man is more fallen than we know. Man is more depraved than we know. But God is more merciful than we know, isn't he? Amen. His mercy and his grace are more vast than sin. And for that we are very, very thankful. Grace greater than all our sin. So we need to uh, consider these things for what they are. But as Christians... Really embrace the hope and grace and peace part. Now, you know the gospel. But when you're evangelizing, when you're touching on the sin issue, make sure they feel it apart from grace and hope and peace. Because that's you got to feel it. you gotta, you got to understand sin. You can't just say, well, I'm not perfect, and that's why Jesus died. It's more than that, isn't it? It's more. Thoughts or questions to finish this up? We have one minute. Yes, sir. So, with that in mind, so people that have a more pleasable mindset that are willing to take their desires and affections to help others and do things, are they more acceptable for God? Or would it be, I would say that, more likely that God would affect them or touch them? Because I have a state of humanity that's there where others have none. There's many that can be done. They just blood. Yeah. You know what well, <laughs> who knows? This can start making some people feel pretty uncomfortable, but let's think. So you've got some neighbors. This is easiest to think in our neighborhoods. You've got some neighbors who are out seeking to do good for people. Based on what we've just studied in Scripture in this lesson, why are they doing that apart from knowing God? Because they don't know God. They're lost. Why are they doing that? Because who's at work in them? And, and, those are both true, and God Himself. Now, I mean, because remember, before He gives them over to sin, He's doing something in their life. Now, I'm not saying He's in them like He's in Christians. But the Holy Spirit's convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's a, a power at work there. And God is, in some sense, restraining them and using them to accomplish His sovereign purposes, isn't He? Yeah. 
Yeah. Because this is about God bringing glory to himself. And if God wants to use a creature to do something, he has full ability, full right to do that. Now, that's not to say men are, again, men aren't just pawns on the chessboard. It's not, uh, they're unable to think or reason or any of those things. They can't please God with any of it. And God will use them even in their fallen state to accomplish his ends. And sometimes that means they'll live a life where it's like, we're not far from the kingdom. You're so close. And then they do come to know the Lord. And other times it means, even though they're that close, in our eyes, they never come to have faith in Jesus. Yeah. So, two things. I actually heard Aaron Shabafalov on, on a... I'll accept that. However, I stop on a show called uh, Mormon Talk or something like that. And the guy on there was saying, you know, I don't want a God that is holy. I want a God that's experienced sin like I have. I'm like sitting here going... Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah that's why... That's what everybody wants. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hold the God. Bring God low and bring us up. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then, I guess the other thing is that, um, it is as literally as deep as you can dig each of our individual desires to not see God in His holiness. And I mean that as Christians too sometimes. Because as we do sin occasionally, we, we don't want God's judgment. Oh, well, yeah. Right? Well, and remember last week, uh, the sermon, the introductory sermon about worship. What are some of the differences between salvation and worship? Because remember, the, I, I stress, they're not the same thing. What are the differences? Salvation says, come as you are. Your actions are irrelevant because your actions are only evil always <laughs> in, in a great sense. Um, you have a heart that doesn't do those things from a position of faith. That's what salvation is. Come as you are. But what's worship now for the believer? Clean hands, pure heart. Remember, we looked at Psalm 24 last week. Thankfulness. Yeah, gratitude, that's right. And are our actions relevant in Christian worship? Immeasurably relevant. Okay, so we have to keep those things in mind. Let's pray. Go ahead. One more thing, Genesis 2, 17. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So in that whole column, that did die. Yes. Yes. Immediately, yeah, right. Because right. they didn't drop dead physically, Adam and Eve. But in an instant, all this was corrupted. <laughs> Go ahead. The other thing is that reason is not... I'm not saying that it will lead to God, but it definitely points to God. The fact that it exists. Yes. There are laws of logic. Fast, the fact that it exists yeah. and the fact that, you know, there's something here when there should be nothing. Yeah. That points to a God. Nature points to God. Yes. Romans 1. Yes. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for saving us. We thank you that though we we're lost without hope in the world. You saved us. You placed us in a family. You transferred us into a kingdom. And you've given us a great hope that you yourself guard and no man can take away. Please give us more and more understanding of this amazing gospel that has entered our lives. That we would look to worship you in every area of life. Father, we're so thankful. And we ask that today as we continue our corporate worship together, 
that we would honor you in all that we say and do and think. In Jesus' name, amen.